0: Because of the sensitive nature of today's show, we had to submit the intro to the State Department and the CIA to make sure it didn't compromise any national security. And they returned it to us in this sealed envelope. Huh, wow. A lot of it is redacted. And they changed the music. Huh. Well, here goes. Hey, Greg, what's up? I see that you're holding a basket of... Are you going to mix them with ham? (laughs) No,
1: Kion, because if I did, I'd be... And we wouldn't want our friends in to know about that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we're going to have to unpack Uh... the... But don't be a highfalutin. Otherwise, I'm going to have to corn. (laughs) Look, just put the mice... I'll be over here on the cushion. That way, the umbrella
1: will punishment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was weird, but welcome to our espionage show. What happens when a guy who always wanted to be a spy gets the job in Moscow during the twilight of the USSR? And now the man who unmasked Hootie and the Blowfish has a bunch of... Colin McEnroe.
2: The weird thing is, why did the State Department make us play rally around the flag on the organ behind that introduction? They they operate at all kinds of levels that we just cannot possibly understand. And it was too bad, though. It was a very funny introduction. I'm sorry that you guys did not get to hear it. Um, But that's the way things are, because we are entering very shaky ground uh, at the level of national security right now. Uh, With us is uh, Justin Lifflander, uh, who should know where we speak when it comes to entering shaky ground in national security. His book, How Not to Become a Spy... A Memoir of Love at the End of the Cold War is the occasion for him being here. A little bit later on the show, we're going to talk to Sarah Laskow. I feel like we already talked to Sarah Laskow once. We did, right? She's already been on the show once. She's from Atlas Obscura. She's the author of an article called The Spy Who Built Me. Because, uh, you know, like every once in a while, you'll see either in docu- in a documentary or a you know, a non fictional account or a fictional account. It's like suddenly somebody's got to get out of somewhere and they go to the safe and they take all those stacks of money. Uh, or somebody, you know, they're trying to turn some agent and they, they have to, you know, come up with some money. Well, like, where's that money come from? And, and then how do they account for it later on? And she's going to explain that. She'll, she will be assisted by Peter Ernest, a former CIA operations officer, He's now the executive director of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., where you can see all kinds of interesting stuff you can't tell anyone about it afterwards. Um, but we're going to start with Justin. So Justin's, uh, Justin, your book uh, is uh, both funny and serious uh, and uh, self-lampooning at times and also very warm-hearted at other times. But it's, it begins as... You know, I guess it's sort of a Bildungsroman, right? It's the story of a young man uh, who is going to come of age, going to have some of the adventures that forge his character. Not unusual, except that you decided to do it in the former USSR in its twilight. Um, so, So how is it that you came to
1: show up shortly after graduation from college in Moscow? it was a, a series of fortunate events, I guess I'd say. Um, I grew up in, in sort of a typical suburban Westchester environment, and I, I developed this fear of boredom, I would say, for a lack of a better way of explaining it. And I combined that with a passion for electronics. I was always into tinkering and wiring and soldering and so forth. So um, I I wound up with these skills of of making night vision goggles and and, and operating wireless microphones, and at the same time when I went to university, I realized I I needed to graduate with something, and um, I picked Russian as, as a language to study because it seemed to fit with my burgeoning ambition to become an intelligence officer. That was so, part of it. And so, yeah, so you describe it growing up even how you –
2: when you watched the old Mission Impossible TV show, you were a big fan of Barney. Barney was, guy, was my hero. Yeah, He with was the his guy, bag of tricks. He, yeah, he had the bag of tricks. He had all the special equipment that he, he could bug anything anywhere. Um, so um, you, you did actually – you started preparation to be something like this. Early on, right? You interned at at the State Department.
1: Yeah, I I interned. uh, I did one college internship at the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research uh, in its Soviet desk and another one at the Federal Bureau of Investigations Counterintelligence Division.
2: And, but, but the, and so you also applied uh, for work of that kind, although they accepted you, but intelligence didn't, right? Spy, the spies- Well, the,
1: the Central Intelligence Agency did not. It rejected me twice, I could say. Once was when I wrote to them uh, while I was still in high school, yeah. getting very enthusiastic <laughs> and asking if there's any kind of internship program I could do. They politely responded that that was not an option. They didn't have such programs, but I should <laughs> study hard and learn foreign languages. They gave me a great brochure, which I then proceeded to cut up and turn into a fake ID. <laughs> um, and then finally, after I, I did the uh, F- FBI internship, this was uh, would be at the end of my junior year, I decided I already had two security clearances. I was ready to play the palace, and I walked into the... Um, yeah, ironically named Ames Building in Roslyn, Virginia, where the CIA had its uh, recruiting station. And I met with a recruiter who first was very pleased to uh, see a, a, a Ivy League guy with two security clearances uh, speaking Russian. Thought I had a good chance. So I, uh, we talked and I filled in the forms, but I had to pretty much come clean on the use of recreational drugs, which mm-hmm. was a big issue for getting security clearances. So um, I filled in the form and, and Wendell, I remember his name, he looked at it and said, you know, um, I, it should be okay, but you'll, you'll get a phone call. So uh, I'm sitting at home um, before school starts, and I, I get a phone call. And I, I can never, I'll never forget the voice of this, this man who called. It was sort of like an aged clown. He said, I'm calling you about that, that uh, job interview you recently had. I said, I understand. I understand. He said, I've got a question. I said, please go ahead. He said, uh, how many hits of marijuana have you had? <laughs> and I said, uh, hits, sir? He says, yeah, hits, tokes, puffs, drags. He said, you want an exact number of how many hits? Okay, well, I'm going to need a little time to calculate. I thought so. I'll call back. So I I calculated, came up with a number based on, you know, average use of a recreational person in in late high school and early college. And uh, he called back and I gave him that number. So that's what I thought. Sorry, but you're going to have to stay clean for another two years and then we'd be happy to look at you again. So that was the end of that. So what you wound up doing instead was
2: going over there as sort of a mechanic motor pool guy. Yes, exactly. Was that an easy
1: position to secure? I was so lucky. I mean, the timing was such that uh, Reagan and Gorbachev were having their final, um, I don't know, can you say pissing match? uh, about? You just did. I did. I just did. Um, Pissing match. I'm going to say it too. I like saying (laughs) it. (laughs) <laughs> they, uh, Reagan had PNG'd or, or kicked out 80 Soviet diplomats from the UN mission in New York at uh, in the fall of 86. And uh, Gorbachev, instead of taking the typical reaction and, and, and kicking out 80 American diplomats, he did a really clever move and he removed all the support staff from the U.S. Embassy in Mo- Moscow. So the embassy kind of ceased to function. The diplomats there didn't know how to buy train tickets or plane tickets or empty their garbage or buy food. And so Reagan then had his counter move, and they hired uh, through the state Department contractors, about 80 of us, to go over there and do the support work. And it was a unique opportunity because there was no way to go there if you weren't already a real diplomat and so forth. So I took a job as a driver mechanic at the U.S. Embassy.
2: Is that why, and there's like this, these little surreal moments, and so you, one of the, the first things among the first people you encounter are these two guys with mops who are mopping the floor. <laughs> yeah. They're janitors, except that they turn out to have these fabulous academic credentials. Yeah, was that, that part it, of that whole the, phenomenon? That
1: whole scene, though, the, the 80 people, about, let's say, less than half of them were sort of typical mercenary contractors, electricians, cooks. They didn't really care where they were. But the rest of us were, were people who just really were into learning about Russia and Soviet Union and culture and so forth and had various degrees in literature and language. And it was a unique opportunity to get there. So it was an interesting team. We were willing to take any job. To so these two you walk in, these two
2: prov- professorial types, they're standing there with mops, they're janitors, but they're having an argument about Tolstoy. Debating I Tolstoy. mean, it's like you can't write a scene like that. I mean, it's, Absolutely. It, it, nobody would believe it uh, except that it happened. So, but as you went over there, you really hadn't let go of the dream. In fact,
1: no, perhaps unwisely,
2: no, no. you arrived with night vision goggles, I believe. I,
1: I kept these things in my suitcase. I, I didn't have a lot of chances to use them. I had I, I the wireless <laughs> microphone with me still. Um, but I, I began to realize I was in a very serious environment, and there, there were no girls' bathrooms to bug, as I had done in the past. So mm. I decided to just leave him in the trunk for that particular uh, experience. And I got a lot of other exposure. I, I fixed the cars for the CIA people at the embassy. I was friends with the chief of station who, who we drove into work often together, and he would tell stories. I mean, there was never any open identification, but it was pretty obvious as to who we were dealing with. And I later read in the Putin newspapers what a famous guy was.
2: So. The, the other part, part of this, I mean, there's sort of some ver- kind of hilarious. As just you're sort of getting to know the Russian people, the way of life, the way things are done in Moscow. So, one of the first things you do, as it turns out, uh, is uh, drive a school bus uh, where uh, embassy kids are picked up from school and brought back to the embassy, or brought from the embassy to the to the special school that they go to. And I think it's on your
1: first day you actually back into yeah, a yeah my, my first Russian run car. with the school bus. First, I, I, a side note: it was very interesting that the Soviet staff at the embassy had been running a taxi service, mm-hmm. and they had been using U.S. government vehicles to shuttle around uh, Muscovites for for fees. It and was we, original Uber, was very original Uber, Uber very <laughs> Uber. A little bit of <laughs> capitalism too, very nice. Um, but not at the American taxpayer's expense, and we found key molds and, and huge gas bills. So that when they <laughs> left, the local Muscovites still didn't quite figure out that there were now Americans driving these vehicles, and they'd be hailing us with great enthusiasm, and I <laughs> had to kick one off my bus at one point. But, yeah, I got a bus driver's license accidentally because I had the um, international driver's license, and it was in the format of the Soviet license, and I had a vehicle with more than six or eight passengers checked, and the motor pool chief said, oh, you're the new bus driver. I said, I've never driven a bus. It doesn't matter. The Soviets don't know that. So he traded my international license, got me a Soviet license, and I was behind the wheel. And, and I was not used to driving such a big vehicle. Mm-hmm. And indeed, uh, I had several accidents. In fact, I have on my wall at home a letter from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs politely recommending that Mr. Lifflaner be reassigned to another job. Fortunately, I never killed anybody, but um, mm-hmm. it was a, a challenge to learn the roads and, and that vehicle.
2: Well, I love that first scene where you, you hit the car and then you, you can't really leave the scene and you're trying to figure out if I give him 30 rubles and a pack of Marlboros, can going to go away. And then you finally decide you've got to go find a traffic cop. And, and that turns into like there's just this Russian story, yeah, right? Russian. Where first of all, he doesn't want to help you because he thinks you're Finnish.
1: And then he realizes you're American and he gets all excited. Yeah. yeah. And he wants and, to show you his badge. Right? He was very, very kind. And I, I'd seen him several times later in that corner and we'd wave to each other, but but uh, he had little interest in, in resolving that. He just wanted to talk politics and how Soviet Union and America were going to get along soon. So,
2: Well, you, meanwhile, while all that's happening behind the scenes, another drama is unfolding. And that is, in fact— um the negotiations between Reagan and Gorbachev, uh, eliminating conventional ground launch ballistic and cruise missiles. So, I mean, in a pretty much of a quantum jump, (laughs) you go from one role to another. Suddenly, you actually are involved in this. Explain how that
1: happened. So, indeed, while we were working there, we were shuttling uh, crews of diplomats and and lots of high-level meetings. And finally, Um, Reagan and and Gorbachev signed the INF, or Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, in December of 87, eliminating this entire class of nuclear weapons. It was historic and highly underrated in my perspective. Uh, diplomatic and, and military uh, accomplishment. And so by the spring they were getting ready to implement it and I was a contractor at the embassy and, and this new company was going to have a contract to supply support personnel for a, a facility outside the gates of a secret missile factory in the Russian hinterland to monitor this agreement and it, of course there was promises of better pay and more vacation and it sounded really exciting and this I decided it was going to be my moment I could really get down and funky with the locals and learn my Russian and, and uh, learn a little bit of military intelligence and, and get involved in Historic activity,
2: yeah. So, and this was also is in the Urals, and it's was there. I think partly because was it because during World War II, Stalin moved a lot of weapons yeah, stuff. Much oh,
1: yeah. of the much of the military industry in the Urals is, is uh, was placed there because of that. Because Stalin was moving factories to, to get away from from the Nazis. This particular factory actually was very old. Uh, Peter Tchaikovsky's father was a manager at it in the uh, 18th century and 19th century. I'm um, sorry, 19th century, but. um, so and, it had a long tradition of making weapons and, and heavy machinery.
2: And they're freaking out because it's the entire economy of, of this town, it's,
1: right? It's a one-in-a-single-industry town. The whole area was closed to foreigners. I mean, in the West, if we have a secret factory, we put a fence around it. Mm-hmm. The Soviets would do that and plus, enclose the entire state so there were no foreigners allowed to be there. Yeah, and so they're suddenly being
2: told, what, you're going to start making washing machines or
1: something? Well, like they, the, they were still and are still making the finest intercontinental ballistic missile that mankind has ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trick, our job, was to make sure that they weren't hiding a banned smaller missile inside the bigger missile. They also did some conversion. They're making washing machines and were making baby carriages. But <laughs> I think the main bread and butter was, is, was yeah, still going to the stop missiles.
2: What, they're, what they're good at. All yeah. right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back with more of this conversation, more of what it's like uh, to find yourself in the middle of the twilight of the USSR.
1: Like a buffalo. Check into a dude, ranch New Mexico. In
2: the desert. We are talking to Justin Liflander, a former business editor for the Moscow Times, a once-aspiring spy, and he's the author of How Not to Become a Spy, a memoir of love at the end of the Cold War. Um, So, uh, we probably should talk about the love part. So, and this, uh, the love interest, your future wife, uh, first materializes as what's called. Somewhat ominously, an escort. So, what's an escort in th- this particular? Environment? That is
1: an official treaty term. It's not something we made up or saw in a newspaper. Um, that describes the people uh, on the opposite side. In this case, the Soviet side, who have the right and obligation to escort the uh, inspecting party. The inspected party has the right to escort the inspecting party uh, when um, its people are in the country checking out missiles and factories and so forth. In this particular case, at the missile factory, much like with the Defense Department, the Soviet Ministry of Defense industry, um, was struggling to find people who spoke English and were willing to move to this little town. And they wound up getting uh, recent graduates from language schools that turned out to be a bevy of attractive young women. Um, So, And so she was
2: one of the... Now, one of the things that we sort of uh, one of the tropes that we do inherit from the spy stories that we know is nobody trusts anybody. Um, everybody suspects everybody else. And and initially, this is kind of a little bit true for you and Sophia, right? I mean, she thinks you're a spy. You think she's a spy?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I would have to say, for us, on the American side, it was pretty clear that the escorts were reporting on us. That was their job. They would even make jokes about it uh, sometimes. To what extent they did it with enthusiasm um, depended on the particular individual. Um, but in, in her case, and, and most of the young ladies, they were just... Uh, saw it as an obligation of their job. Um, from their perspective, they had been told by both the factory security department and, and the head of the KGB locally that the, all the Americans were spies. They were there to steal secrets. They were there to co-opt them. And they had to be careful. They had to be monitored. They had to be reported on and so forth. And, and we did many things that did not help with this uh, impression. Well, one of the things that you did that did not help with this impression was to dig holes, right? No, tell not, tell no. the whole digging story. I, I, I've had a bit of an obsession, I can't say why, with basements my whole life. Mm-hmm. I, I would like My workshop was always in a basement. And um, basically, the buildings that we uh, lived in at the missile factory were considered diplomatically inviolable, according to the treaty. Um, and the Soviets made them for us and then handed them over. But they tried to hand them over without the basements. Mm-hmm. And you know, I can under, understand, if you look at the map in my book, you'll see that these bu- buildings were a couple of meters from the gates of the factory. We were getting our water, electricity, and so forth. The Americans said, no, either the whole building or we, we don't move in. Uh, and so finally, they closed the whole area, did some work, and two weeks later they gave us the building. Well, I naturally was piqued my interest was to see what was going on in those basements. And they looked like something out of uh, Midnight Express, sort of mm-hmm. a dingy, slightly wet. Turkish prison, but I, I decided that I had energy and time, and I would spruce them up, and I also needed to smoke cigars, and there was no official place to smoke cigars, so I set up a poker parlor, I set up a hot tub room, a little office, and it was a little clubhouse for me and several other people, and also made a little shooting range down there. But one night I was remembering my, my, some of my education that I had at the FBI and, and what kind of microphones can be put where, and, and um, I found a hole in the wall It just looked suspicious, and, and mm-hmm. I started to dig and dig and dig, and I did indeed uncover a, um, what I think was a really a seismic monitoring device to make sure that the Americans were not digging in the basements. <laughs> That's exactly what I was doing. I mean, in retrospect, it was a pretty stupid thing to do because I was uh, creating suspicion, and, and I actually created suspicion on both sides. I had to explain eventually to the Americans that I wasn't making a Provocation for the benefit of the Soviets. The Soviets were convinced that this was proof that I was a spy, and the fact that I wasn't kicked out for this, which I probably should have been, um, was also proof, as far as they were concerned, that I was a spy. So,
2: well, I, just in Luflander, we're going to have to sort of um, leapfrog over various rocks in the river. And people want to hear read the entire story. They're going to have to get the book, which is one of the reasons you're here <laughs> in the first place. But so, at, at, at another point, you wind up working for Hewlett Packard, yeah. um, and. Um, at this point also, you're, you're, you're seeking a reunion with Sofia, right? Yes, you, you, yes. And so this is a pretty good story. This is sort of, once again, this kind of um, if people think you're a spy, all kinds of things can happen. Yes. T-
1: tell that story. Yeah. Well, she, she was still at the missile factory. I had moved back to Moscow, wanted to get begin a relationship, but she was having real problems, particularly with the local KGB. So I was looking for ways that I could somehow help her in her effort to get freed from her contract there. And a friend of mine introduced me to the um, deputy minister of defense industry um, with the idea of organizing a meeting between the minister and um, a visiting Hewlett-Packard executive. So I met this fellow, and um, he was very slick. He was the one responsible for selling weapons for the country f- all over the world. He was very well-dressed incredible English, and I think he spoke Spanish and, and Farsi and, and a very slick fellow. And after we had a meeting to prepare for the meeting of our bosses, um, he insisted I drive him to his office, which was kind of strange because he was a high-level person. He has his own driver. And in the course of that meeting, he revealed something that the spy parlance is called all his mice, money, ideology, compromise, ego, the four main reasons why people betray their country. Mm. And this fellow told me about how he was poorly paid, how um, he was fed up with the communism. Um, he loved chasing girls and what, 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 uh, ego. And he just loved himself, apparently. And I really didn't put two and two together. Here I was a secretary to the general manager. Manager driving a potential uh, counter uh, uh, party to his office, and I, I, he said, "Oh, we have to meet again." And he got out, of, and uh, I suddenly realized that um, after he got out, that this guy thought I was able to recruit him, and um, so I, I pondered that. He actually wound up giving giving us some not. So sensitive, not secret, but I would say sensitive documents about conversion. And sure enough, uh, sometime later, I turned on my TV and there he is confessing on, an, on an, a KGB uh, movie about how he betrayed the country and sold secrets to the British. So they must have been the ones who got him.
2: All <laughs> right. So, um, well, then it wasn't your fault. No. Um, mm-hmm. And so I want to talk a little bit about sort of your your present. I mean,
1: you actually, you stayed and you're, you have dual citizenship. I have dual citizenship. Yes. How did that come about? Um, it was also sort of accidental, like, like other things. I, it was the uh, late 90s, and many um, people from various Soviet republics were trying to come back and become citizens of Russia. So there was, there was a kind of an emerging process, and, and I, I really decided I was going to be here for a while. I had a family. I had pets. I had a mother-in-law, a house. So it all seemed to make sense that, that I should. I wanted to get a green card, and I put my brother-in-law, a college student, to stand on various lines. And at one point, he comes back and reports that, you know, just one more form, and you could get citizenship. And I thought, well, why not? Why not? I mean, it's serious, but I I believe in that. I love Russia very much. And um, so applied and signed, and and by 2000, I had received my citizenship.
2: You you have a a unique perspective on on this. You got a glimpse. You were there just in time to get a glimpse of the end of the old USSR, um, the the transitional Gorbachev era, and you have a chance to to see what things are like now under Putin. I think... um, People in the U.S. think less about Russia than they did about the Soviet Union mm-hmm. in the 1980s, mm-hmm. yeah. but they don't not think about it, and they're aware of Putin. And I, in terms of sort of the the climate there, um, how what, what what's the make a comparison between okay. that time in the late 80s and, and now?
1: Sure, um, I can make a number of comparisons. So at the very end of the Cold War, um, talking about uh, let's say 1990ish. Um, there were 86 ongoing negotiations between the US and the USSR at the embassy of different topics from fish to agriculture to military and so forth. Right now, I think there are zero. Uh, I guess uh, for the serious situation, there are some things being discussed, but in reality, there, there's no official cooperation and very little official communication, and that's that's real tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how you know the people are dealing with each other, well, let's say uh, you can just look at opinion polls. I, I think in the U.S., Russia doubled uh, as a, as a threat to uh, perceived threat by U.S. citizens from twelve from six percent to twelve percent, whereas the Russian population. According to a recent poll, sixty uh, percent of it sees America as an enemy, and thirty percent of it believes that America could attack Russia.
2: Um, you know, it's it's sort of weird that when you see, you see that other thing about sort of areas of negotiation, because it it almost sounds like the domestic U.S. too that we've gone from an era where people of opposing political parties intra-United States, could talk to one another, have committees of conference, work out differences to a time where they effectively can't. I mm-hmm. mean, in, in our Congress now, there are no committees of conference. There are there just isn't a lot of conversation back and forth across the aisle. It's almost as though, I mean, some some of what you described may be due to Putin and how he's perceived and how he acts, but some of it, I assume, is due to us, too. We don't know how to talk to people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I look back at, at what Reagan and Gorbachev did. I mean, Reagan hated communism, hated the Soviet Union. But he had a policy of of no linkage, meaning it doesn't matter what you're doing in one place, we'll talk to you and we will talk to you. Mm -hmm. The idea of engagement, very, very important. And at the end of the day, they found a way to respect each other enough to accomplish great things. And I really think that model is possible to repeat. I'm very disappointed in the current administration in its approach to Russia. I I think it's put some really incompetent people um, as as, um, people deciding policy about that. And I think that's a big reason why we're in the situation we are right now. in, into the middle of all that comes Edward Snowden. Um, is, is he just is he a celebrity in Moscow? I mean, how, how is he perceived? You know, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I have one thing uh, in common with uh, Vladimir Putin, and that is I hate traitors, and <laughs> and he hates traitors. And you could almost see and and hear in his words when he was commenting on this guy, he did not want to be saddled with this. Mm-hmm. But um, so be it. I don't think your average Russian thinks about him much at all. He's mm-hmm. just kind of this strange American character that that popped up. Um, so I personally, I'm thankful for the wake-up call for the world that he reminded everybody about Signal's intelligence and its significance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, maybe I've been away from America too long, but I, I'm an optimist, uh, particularly about the United States. And I think he could probably accomplish much of what he wanted to accomplish without betraying the country and without leaving the country. And, um, yeah, so... He's not a big figure on the on the Russian scene. He's more of a comical one.
2: You know, you're an optimist uh, in a way, and you allude to this in the book. Um, right now we have these two superpowers that really don't talk, can't talk, don't know how to talk. Uh, your life, however, is symbolic uh, of the notion that people can learn how to talk. Um, you're married to someone who initially didn't even know that you weren't a spy, and yep. you didn't know she wasn't a spy. So I assume that you you look at your own relationship and think, well, it does show what the possibilities are.
1: Yeah. We've been, we're going to celebrate 25 years together at the uh, next year. So I, I think it's possible for two countries with, with good diplomatic tradi- traditions to, to find uh, common language.
2: Do you do you and your wife see all of this geopolitical stuff pretty much the same way, or do you see it specifically through your American lens and, and her Russian lens?
1: We're pretty mixed at this point. I mean, we definitely have different perspectives. Um, she doesn't believe in any politicians anywhere, and that's a common common theme in 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 more older Soviet people. a Deep level of cynicism. Um, and since she doesn't watch TV, she doesn't get brainwashed by, by a lot of the state-controlled media right now in Russia. And there is some of that going on. That's, that's a difficult period within Russian society because you have people who really do see what's going on. They've been around. They know that what they're being told is not true. And they really – many of my friends love America. And, and their first thing they ask me is, oh, what do the Americans really think about Russians? They're really concerned about that. So.
2: We're talking to Justin Lifflander. Uh, the book is How Not to Become a Spy, a memoir of love at the end of the Cold War. We're going to take a quick break, and what's going to happen during this quick break is that we are going to ask you to support this radio station. If you do it during this show, it's good for us. It means you are listening and you pledged during our show. I don't have to paint more of a picture than that for you. So please uh, think about when the nice people come on to talk to you about pledging and getting wonderful gifts and stuff, please think about doing that. When we come back, we'll have more of Justin. And as I say, we'll also have some answers to that question. And what happens when spies need money and don't have time to ask Congress, you know, for, I don't know, $100,000 or something? Just
1: love their children.
0: show was produced by, maybe I shouldn't tell, let's just say his name sounds like Tosh Dekaya. I may have had something to do with it too, but um, maybe not. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our is Dan Schultz. The part of Bill Curry was played by Boris Spassky. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff drinking scalding hot vodka, visit our website WNPR.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin.
2: Yes, yeah, so Justin Liefelder is here in the studio with me. Uh, he is the author of How Not to Become a Spy, uh, and in just a second, we're going to be talking to Sarah Laskow from uh, Atlas Obscura uh, and Peter Ernest, who's a former CIA operations officer, now the executive director of the International Spy Museum in Washington D.C. Um, Justin, before we go to those uh, guys, though, uh, I wanted to ask you one last thing about the book, which is it's coming. the The Russian edition is coming out now. Um, I don't, I can't think of anything in the book that's going to cause you to be dragged away uh, somewhere. Uh, to some other basement. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, you must have some questions about how it's going to land uh, on a Russian readership.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, basically, I was encouraged by all my Russian friends who got tired of hearing my stories in English over the past 20 years to, to translate and, and try to publish it, and that's what we did. We got an excellent translation done um, using the company uh, run by Gorbachev's translator, actually, <laughs> and they did a really passionate job, a whole team of really uh, professionals, and I worked on editing it along with my wife, and uh, now, just last week, it, it came out, and i 'm going to be doing some touring in russia and I think you know, the question is, how will Russian society, which, which as I mentioned, is thirty is, you percent know, of which thinks it 's about to be attacked by the United States, will receive this this uh, rather jocular American guy with uh, happens to have a Russian passport showing up at their local bookstore and, and offering to sign copies of an inexpensively priced fine piece of literature. So uh, I'm excited about that, and I think it'll be very revealing, and, and we'll see how far that Amer- anti-Americanism has mm-hmm. gone.
2: Right. Well, they'll certainly, certainly pick it up if they got their – what's the name for the little mesh bag that you carry uh, I, with you? I, I, I get, voska. Oh, Yeah, Avoska. Good good. good. Yeah, yeah. So if they, got, if, if they see the line for the book <laughs> and they've got their voska with them, then they'll get it. They'll get it. Who knows? Well, I,
1: I hope it is a deficit item. That's what I'm counting. Yeah,
2: exactly. All right. So we're going to add a couple of voices to this conversation. And as I said, Peter, Peter Ernest uh, is a, a former CIA operations officer, now the executive director of the International Spy Museum in Washington D.C. Sarah Lasko is a uh, writer for uh, Atlas Obscura. She's on our show. I don't know, once every two weeks or so. Uh, we just bring Sarah on. Uh, well, that's the pattern we're on right now. Anyway, um, so in her um, article that, that uh, caught our eye was the spy who built me. So, Sarah, this is a, a little bit about why or or how we've often seen these scenes. We read about them in books. We see it in movies, fictional movies and non-fictional movies. There's a moment where the spy suddenly needs some money. Sometimes he needs a lot of money. Um, Sometimes he needs a little bit of money because he's wooing some other asset that he's hoping to turn or something like that. So you got interested in that question. Where does that money come from? How do they account for it? What did you find out about that?
3: Yeah, we were interested in finding out, you know, when you live this potentially more glamorous life than the rest of us, how do you deal with this thing that for most of us is sort of mundane, like collecting receipts from your travel and actually accounting to your bosses? Um, and we figured that if you were in a clandestine operation, maybe it would be a little bit more exciting. Um, and the reality is that, like, for a lot of people who have these jobs, a lot of what they do is the same as what we do. You know, you have to account for where you stayed, where you eat, you know, you um, where, you're, where you rented your car. And so it's not all sort of fun and James Bond. But occasionally um, expenses do come up that you wouldn't normally have on a business trip. And so, you know, you hear about people needing, um, you know, defectors showing up and, and all of a sudden you need to take a big wad of cash out of the um the safe, basically, and give it to them so that when they land wherever they are safe, they have money to spend.
2: Right. So the the article opens with uh, a CIA official whose name is Vertify, I believe, who does that. And it has to to happen so fast that it doesn't even get counted, right? She just kind of shoves it into somebody's hands.
3: Yeah. And she says, you know, that's from the book. And she says that she had to, you know, answer for herself later to her bosses. So even when you are in the field making decisions on the fly, there is like a surprising amount of accountability for people who have these jobs.
2: So, Peter Ernest, you know, I mean, so many of our perceptions of this world are influenced by completely inaccurate m- movies. Um, although, as I said earlier on today, you know, we sort of have two counter narratives, James Bond and-, and George Smiley. And George Smiley is probably a little bit <laughs> closer to the truth. But I, I assume that, it- it, you know, Sarah says it is kind of like a, a job that you have, the- a job where you-, you do have to ultimately explain why it is you took somebody out to that fancy restaurant. I- is that how it goes?
4: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the one thing that we have a, a major James Bond display downstairs. Uh, one of the things we don't show there is his accountings, uh, <laughs> and you have to remember the people who carry out espionage for our country—they're government employees, whether they're you know CIA or FBI or DIA or any of the other agencies that deal with with agents and so forth. So. Yes, we are responsible. It's, ta- it's your money. It's taxpayer money. We're very well aware of that. And uh, t- typically, you, you do accountings regularly for your money where it's gone. Uh, and yes, there are emergency situations where you ne- may need to put your hands on some, some cash fairly quickly and, uh, and account for it later. And that has certainly happened to me. I was in the clandestine service. I faced that situation. Uh, you know, any of us are prepared to deal with that, and we're also prepared to account for the money.
2: And um, when you say prepared to deal with that, uh, Peter, does that mean that occasionally you sort of basically just put your own money on the line and hope you're going to get reimbursed?
4: Yes, sure. Because uh, in operations, uh, you're not always uh, sure what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And you may suddenly need to cover an expense, uh, you know, something as simple as paying for a meal or maybe a car repair or who knows. And uh, and and that'll be something that is clearly what I would call you wouldn't call it a business expense. I would call it an operational expense. And uh, there are many times I've put my own money on the line.
2: Um, Sarah Lasco uh, back when the publishing industry had a lot more money, uh, it was a lot more like James Bond. And I do remember being taken out uh, to lunch by uh, book editors uh, who wanted to do a project with me. But mainly what would happen was I would go to a pretty expensive restaurant that they wanted to go to. I didn't know anything about restaurants. I didn't know where I was being taken. I was a complete idiot. But uh, it was pretty clear, well, this guy really, he wanted to check out this restaurant and we could do it on Double Day's money uh, or Simon & Schuster's money. And, and there's a little bit of that. I think you heard about here that, you know, uh, espionage people are human beings. Uh, I thought it was really interesting that there was some fluctuation even on the strength of the dollar in various countries. Right. When the dollar was weak, you found one they found one thing. When the dollar was strong, they found another.
3: Right. Well, you know, when you're in the field working as an officer, um, one of the things you're trying to do is get to know people, recruit them to help you in various ways. And that means going to parties, whining and dining them, things like that. Um, but one thing that I heard from a couple of people was that actually that doesn't happen as much as it should. But there was one example I came up with where um, exactly as you describe, you know, the recruitment efforts went way up when um, these agent, these officers who were living in Europe, I think, um, all of a sudden couldn't afford to take themselves out to eat to fancy restaurants on their salary and dollars. And so they started – Doing their jobs much better because it gave them an excuse to go out and have a nice meal.
2: Um, Justin Lifflander, I'm wondering uh, what the KGB version of this. My my sense is that the
1: KGB's accounting system may not be quite as rigid. Well, we're, we're famous for having lots of paperwork in Russia. There's no issue there. But um, particularly in, in the late 90s and, and early 90s when things were pretty wild, um, security services people were getting involved in other businesses and so forth. And I remember when I was interviewed for my citizenship, they were mostly interested not in, in me as an enemy of the people, but actually in, in, if, if Hewlett-Packard needed any help in any of its business activities. And, and just building on what Sarah was saying, I remember I was also approached by a, an intelligence officer from the, the Cuban embassy in Moscow who was trying to get some brochures of HP out of me. And, and, you know, he would take me to lunch at McDonald's. I mean, they really did not have a lot of money. And we would actually take turns. I would then take him out for something nice because I felt bad for him, but I knew how desperate they were for hard currency. So it really depends on, on how your country's economy is doing.
2: Um uh, Sarah uh, you know as Peter was saying m- most of the agents do spend very responsibly most of the CIA and other intelligence agents uh, do um spend very responsibly did you find any instances where lavish spending went on
3: Um I didn't personally you know uncover anything like that but uh, I did read one about one case um that the Washington Post reported on maybe 10 years ago um Uh, an Italian court was investigating Mm -hmm. um, an instance where um, American intelligence officers had taken someone from Italy and and brought them to Egypt. And the records that came out in that case did show them, you know, staying at really fancy five-star hotels that cost $450 a night. You know, the total bill for that operation just from the hotel was tens of thousands of dollars. They were spending $500 a day on their diner's club cards. So, you know, I don't know how often things like that happen. And, and you know, it's not all the time, clearly, if people are also eating at McDonald's. But um, it sounds like it does happen occasionally, at least.
2: And Peter, uh, you know, Justin, I was asking Justin about the KGB. But one thing we do know about the KGB is that occasionally handlers bill the KGB for payments to operatives who don't
4: exist. Uh, in the KGB? yeah, Yes, I have heard of that. Um, and then I think has come up that kind of thing I think probably as I won't say probably as I recall there was an instance or two in the in the agency when I was there. I was both a field agent in the clandestine service, and what I would underline there is: first of all, you don't do things, take people to dinner, expense things, buy things, and so forth, just willy-nilly, and then put in a receipt, and everything's just hunky-dory. Your accountings are reviewed, you know. What you're doing is very much accountable to the people that are your seniors. You know, you know, if they see Peter, you know, is doing XYZ and it's costing a lot of money, they're going to question that. It's not, I'm, out, I'm not out there all by myself just sending in receipts for whatever I want to do. The other thing that I want to underline is I did a, a lengthy tour, almost three years, with the CIA Inspector General. And in the inspector's general's office, we include a fairly large auditing department. And auditing people do precisely that, just like they do for IBM or your radio station or anything else. They go out and they look over the accountings. They look over the activities of the station or the officer. And they're looking for anomalies just like the ones you describe. So even if you find an example here or there, I think, and I think you'll find that no matter where you look, even in Volkswagen, <laughs> uh, you're, you're going to you know you're going to also find in large organizations you're going to find some sort of auditing and accounting going on
2: well Peter, and maybe one of the big differences is that uh here at w n p r although we obviously do have lavish expense accounts we 're not polygraphed you guys were are pretty regularly or you can be polygraphed about yes
4: this. that's right um, you
2: know,
4: so that's another you know that's a another check but what i 'm saying is that there are the standard checks you would expect to find in, you know, uh, uh, any large organization where they exercise some authority over their, over their, uh, I mean, auditing responsibility over their employees.
2: So, Sarah, be ready because David Platz at any point could uh, bring you into a small room uh, and polygraph you about your expenses for Atlas Obscura.
3: We do have a very small conference room, so I'll be prepared. <laughs>
2: um, we should just quickly say that th- this article was sort of by way of Atlas Obscura's mission of drawing our attention to all kinds of interesting things. Uh, people who visit, visit Washington maybe don't know about the American Spy Museum. So, um, Peter, we only have about a minute left, but tell us about one thing there that you're especially proud of.
4: <laughs> well, people they will say, what's your favorite? I'll tell you what I'm especially proud of. Hmm. We have a letter sent by George Washington, our first president, to, an, uh, to someone he is enlisting to form a spy ring. And he offers him a, a payment, and uh, that is a retainer, and then a monthly payment. His name is Nathaniel Sackett. And uh, 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 rightly, Washington is regarded as the father of American intelligence because he engaged in all the things that intelligence services do, that is, recruiting agents engaging in secret communications, invisible, you know, invisible writing, codes, interrogation of prisoners, all those things... That we do up to and including today.
2: Right. Well, Peter Ernest, you don't have to tell us that we are. This is the home state of Nathan Hale and of Benedict Arnold. Uh, We're going to have to say goodbye now. But thanks to Peter Ernest, thanks to Sarah Laskow from Atlas Obscura, and thanks to Justin Lifflander. The book is "How Not to Become a Spy: A Memoir of Love at the End of the Cold War." There's a little bit more fundraising coming up here. Please support us now. It does help the show. Helps management believe that the show is a good thing.
0: Please remember, your pledge of $50,000 or more helps us turn a Russian agent in Latin America. As our way of saying thanks, you'll get an umbrella tipped with polonium, which you can use to assassinate somebody. But don't, no, don't do that, okay? Just maybe look at it or show it off or something.